Wakanda Mason's Brown Rice Hour, a podcast that quilts together a fabric of connection between land, race, money, culture, and spirit. Discover a connection that engages with the most inspiring and cutting-edge thought leaders today, pointing toward our collective healing and liberation. If you are interested in supporting the Brown Rice Hour, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Conda. I am really, really happy to be here this evening with uh, a dear, dear person and friend and, and colleague, uh, Amaka Agbo. And so I want to welcome people to the Brown Rice Hour, um, where, we, where we have conversations at the intersection of land, race, money, culture, and spirit. And my guest this evening, Amaka Agbo, is, um, describes her work as restorative economics practitioner committed to building liberated futures. And so I want to welcome you, Amaka, to my broadcast, my podcast. I am so grateful you are here. Well, thanks for having me, Conda. I'm really, I'm looking forward to this conversation as, you know, you have been one of the people that's accompanied me and really like set me on the path early on when we met when I was in my, I was a young 20 something. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having, uh, having this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's so cool. It's so wonderful to see you and to have watched you over the years and, um, oh man, I feel so proud. And, um, I wanted to um, start with giving people um, a little bit of opening up with this little sacred space first. And, you know, I just like to honor the ancestors um, who have, uh, uh, whose shoulders upon which we, we all stand. And I'm so aware right now, I don't know about you, but it feels like in this intense time on the planet that we're experiencing, it's like the ancestors are not even whispering anymore. They're like yelling in our ears, really guiding, really guiding so much. And I know I feel it so deeply and I just always, always honor their presence, you know, and and knowing that we could not be doing this without the kind of resilience and strength and love that they brought and have... Um, have really instilled in all of us. So I, I love to give, you know, just big um, honoring and also honoring the land where I am right now. Um, the This is uh, the unceded territory of the Choctaw people who were the original people here, which is now called Louisiana. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us where, what land you're you're on right now. Yeah, I am in unceded Ohlone territory in Northern California in the Bay Area. And um, yeah, I have the, the honor of calling West, West Oakland, East Oakland, Deep East Oakland, um, my home. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love East Oakland. I just, I have a home there myself that I'm here in Louisiana right now. And so um, that's wonderful. So thank you for, for that and for us thinking about the ancestors and also um, the future generations that are really counting on us that for whose ancestors we will be. Um, may we do the work that we're here to do with the kind of of heart and love that has been instilled in us. May we not forget the love. You know, it's like we're so moving forward, so many issues, so many things that need to move 
forward and and we're driven i know i am and so many people that i know are so driven and and um and i just want to always anchor in love because we do this work because we love something so much and it's this planet and it's this earth and each other and so i just like to always you know bring that into the middle of the conversation before we even start that's right yeah so you know amaka i um i always start um, well, let me let me give let me give a little bit of background to folks. Um, let me get, read your bio right now, if you don't mind. I I, oh, I love this. So, so Amaka is right now is the CEO of the Katali Foundation, and the managing director of the Restorative Economics Fund. In her roles, she collaborates with the Katali team to lead the foundation's day to day operations while holding the community-centered strategy and vision for the fund. Such a beautiful vision for this fund. We'll, we'll get, we'll talk about it. With a background in community organizing, electoral campaigns, policy and advocacy work on racial, social, and environmental justice issues, Amaka is deeply committed to supporting projects that build resilient, healthy, and self-determined communities rooted in shared prosperity. Prior to joining Katali team, Amaka built an independent consulting practice guided by her framework on restorative economics, which we will also be speaking of. Um, as a consultant, she provided technical assistance and strategic guidance to community-owned and governed community wealth-building initiatives like Restore Oakland, which is a wonderful initiative, Black Land and Power, and others. Amaka's work, work with these community-driven projects led her to providing trainings and advisory services to donors, foundations, and impact investment firms, including institutions like the San Francisco Foundation and RSF Social Finance. Amaka has served as a fellow for the Center for Economic Democracy and for Movement Strategy Center. She proudly serves on the board of Thousand Currents, which we love, Restore Oakland, and Resource Generation. She graduated from UC Davis with a bachelor's degree in sociology and African-American studies and holds a master's of public administration, specializing in financial management from San Francisco State University. And it sounds like you have a certain kind of love for a little bit of bourbon. Girl, all the bourbons. All the bourbons. Uncle Nearest has been my latest jam. <laughs> What's it called? Uncle, Uncle Nearest. Uncle Nearest. Yes, it's a um, black um, female-owned bourbon distiller. I'll tell oh, you the story afterwards. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, I'm I'm lame when it comes to that kind of stuff. I am so happy to hear you. I think about when I was reading the bio about you're going back to school at, and and getting your that uh, master's. Mm-hmm. And that time when you were making that decision, um, going from community organizing and going to, to what was that at that time that was driving you to do that? Yeah, um, that was, I struggled with that moment. It was, um, I went back I to school because, you know, that was coming right off of the, the Great Recession. And so that mm. was coming off of a 2012 is when I was in a leadership position at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. And, 
you know, so many organizations, including ours, we were witnessing were really struggling to fundraise from foundations because foundations had been impacted by the Great Recession. So their endowments had taken a hit. And because their endowments took a hit, they weren't giving out as much in their 5% grant making. So this Mm -hmm. meant that social movements that heavily relied on the 501c3 nonprofit structure Mm -hmm. as the backbone slash industry by which they do their organizing work were hit really hard. And we, and I recognize that that was a moment where um, I understood a lot about campaigning strategy and had a lot of critiques of the economy, but I myself didn't fundamentally understand what was happening in the broader economy when it tipped off in 2007, 2008, and what it would therefore mean for organizations like ours later down the road that relied on the stock market performing because that's Mm -hmm. how foundations typically hold their assets. Mm -hmm. And that is what then makes it possible for them to then do the 5% grant making. So all of that to say, it was an eye-opening moment for me where I was like, I actually need to go back to school. I need to Mm -hmm. fundamentally understand how the economy works. I need to understand how finance works. And I need to understand what are the mechanisms and the ways that we create self-determination and shared prosperity for folks outside of the 501c3 nonprofit structure. I think that there is and continues to be a need for nonprofit organizations. And I think if we observe some of the ways in which the right has been able to continue to hurt and harm black and brown communities, it's because they're not only using 501c3s, they're also using 501c4 electoral organizations, they're using PACs, they're using Uh, LLCs, LLPs, all the things, which means that they're having access to different forms of capital as well. Mm -hmm. And so wanting to require myself to have a level of discipline, to have Mm -hmm. a more holistic approach around what was actually needed to help support um, communities that were on the front lines of fighting for social justice. Mm -hmm. And so um, Going back, I mean, didn't you learn traditional economics and how did that, I mean, you know, where did you, how did that impact you? Because I'm, I don't know, I don't know the program, but I'm assuming that you were learning traditional economics and um, were you able to immediately see through what the problem is or what was that transition like? One of the great things about going back to graduate school after having worked for a number of years is that I wasn't necessarily going back to graduate school to learn a lot of new information. I was going back to school to understand the frameworks or the ways in which my my organizing and my political activism career, um, how I could have some frameworks and set some context to understand what was happening there. So all that to say, a story that I often share is the opening pages of my graduate school micro and macro economics book framed the study of economy as one in which we are studying to determine who gets to decide who eats caviar and who eats potatoes, who is taking the public transit and who's driving a Corvette. And so for me, from the very beginning, it was very clear that this worldview was fundamentally rooted in a narrative of scarcity, mm-hmm. of competition, of mm-hmm. have and have nots. And so that I was able to then take the information that I was receiving Um, and put it in the context of, well, what does that mean for the world that I want to create that's rooted in abundance, justice, equity, and liberation? And so always having to translate 
understanding, you know, supply and demand and GDP mm-hmm. and elasticity mm-hmm. to what does it actually mean as we're moving towards liberation around um, around how we move resources um, within and between communities. Yeah, boy, I, I love I love what you're saying and that 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 gap there between all that you're that you're pointing to when you look at the disparities and you really understand that what economics, the scarcity platform, basically, and, and the platform of, uh, I mean, even when you, when you look at interest and you think about, about how interest works, right? It's like, right, if you give me a dollar and I owe you back a dollar 10, where does that 10 cent come from? <laughs> Right. Who who's who suffered for that 10 cents that that I give you back? And and it's like just basics that I also started thinking about. And and I, so I, I love um, what you're pointing to. There's, there's so much that I want to that I want to say. I really want to find out and I want you to explain to folks um, restorative economics. What is that? This I love it. You have coined the term and it is um, it. it I feel it just saying the words and just reading the words. I feel it inside myself, but I'd love for you to explain it. What is restorative economics? Yeah. So to, to set up restorative economics and how I came to that body of work, um, I think part of what I want to tease out about what you just lifted up around this story of interest and how mm-hmm. that $1 mm-hmm. generated an additional 10 10 cents mm-hmm. is that one of the things we've seen um, most recently is kind of the game stop phenomenon on Wall Street and right. how that um, that IPO has risen in value because um, we've seen how low net worth holders have kind of invested and helped to kind of increase the stock. And I think right. one of the one of the popular narratives coming out of it is that people are like, oh, the economy is just made up. And it's like, yes, this is what we've been saying, yes. that we actually get to have choice around yes. how we move resources, around how we take care of certain communities. Yes. And um, and so all that to say, for so long, I thought that capital finance, the economy was fixed, mm-hmm. right? That right. there were right. rigid structures and I had to go in there and study it. And what I came to understand is, oh, these are all man-made. The rules bend for certain people and they harden for others. And so knowing that, then I felt empowered. I'm like, oh, we could actually have a different worldview mm-hmm. under which we come to understand economy. And one of the things I always feel important to lift up that um, movement generation really um, taught me or reminded me of is that the Greek meaning of the word economy is the management of home. And so when I think about economy in that context, I'm not thinking about the elasticity and the interest rate like you lifted up. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about my family, my friends, my culture and traditions, Mm -hmm. all the ways that I create safe and sacred space within my home. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that we have the opportunity and dare I say the responsibility to shift the narrative and the stories around economy economy being the expansive um, way we come to understand the management of our collective home, planet Earth, and all the resources and goodness um, within it, um, felt empowered to look at creating a framework that acted as kind of my own personal guidelines for how I Mm -hmm. would go about doing my consulting work. 
And so restorative economics um, is something that was directly informed by kind of coming off of the Great Recession, going back to graduate school, working in um, neighborhood scale, um, urban de planning, urban plan, urban de redevelopment projects, um, like with organizations like eco districts. And so it is fundamentally rooted in the frameworks of restorative justice and reparations. And restorative economics is an forces us into an intentional transition out of an extractive and exploitative capitalist economy and towards something that's more just. One of the reasons it felt really important for me to kind of um, carve out a space where we're intentional about the type of transition we want to have happen is that one, what I observed is that as we were, I've started to see the popularization of the sharing economy through platforms like Airbnb and Uber is that it was those individuals that had the, the risk tolerance, mm -hmm. um, the, the flexible capital and the leisure time to go and create kind of these new platforms and these new ways of thinking about sharing your car or sharing your home. And those individuals then happen to be wider and wealthier because they already had disposable income. And so for me, someone who comes out of a social, racial, economic justice background wanted to ensure that we were looking at a transition towards a more just economy that was deeply focused on restoring, reinvesting those communities that have been most extracted from, exploited, locked out, and left behind. And those are Black, Brown, Indigenous, immigrant, trans, um, migrant communities. Mm -hmm. So restorative economics, once again, being um, a call for our first Acknowledging the hurt and harm that has been done to these communities through intentional policies and practices um, and careless activities, both of individuals and government, right? So in order to restore and heal, you have to first acknowledge the harm that was done. And then you have to engage in a, a commitment towards reconciling repair. So repairing, making whole those communities that have been hurt and harmed. And then we can start to have a conversation once you... Once you have healed, once you've been restored, then you're in a position, you're in a state of power, a state of independence to engage in a conversation about what this new just economy should look like going forward. But when we don't actually repair and um, support those communities, we end up, we have the same people at the table and yeah. we end up unfortunately replicating the same hurt and harms that got us here. So restorative economics sits in complement to the solidarity economy frameworks, we see that women of color have really lifted up in indigenous communities in the global South. It's, it's in complement to the just transition framework that came out of um, uh, the peak oil crisis of the 1970s and workers um, in that industry. Um, also, you know, informed by the new economy frameworks that we see come out of academia, um, particularly on the East Coast. For me, none of those frameworks, except the solidarity economy one, because people understand the global South, but in the global North, we weren't actually having a conversation about addressing race. We weren't looking at race, class, or gen, um, race, class, or gender, and how we were thinking about who should be prioritized for mm -hmm. these impact investments, for these social impact bonds. And so by creating a framework that requires us to be very intentional about who we're investing in, how we go about investing in them, 
um, and what types of projects we're supporting. We get to be very deliberate. And once again, we have a responsibility to be deliberate about what mm-hmm. we are popularizing, what we are investing in, and what we are growing in the hopes that it is actually in service of that, that vision of justice and liberation. Um, and so I support projects um, that are community-owned and governed, interested in supporting those projects where groups of people or groups of organizations are coming together to collectively own and manage an asset. An asset being, it could be land. It could be land that's held in the community land trust and a a real estate cooperative. It could be market rate development. It could be a community governed loan fund, a vehicle where a community is coming together to make decisions about how to reinvest resources um, in their local businesses and, and other efforts. But the, the goal here being around the collective ownership and governance is that we start to actually push back against the model of capitalism that's so much focused on glorifying the wealth and riches of the sole individual entrepreneur, mm-hmm. right? And in community organizing work, as you know, and cut me off at any time because I can just keep talking. I am. About. I'm not going to cut you <laughs> off at any time. You just keep going, <laughs> please. Um, I think, you know, as, as we know, as community organizers, when development or investments happen in our communities, whether it's um, new market tax credits, opportunity zones, promised neighborhoods, the community is told, oh, you will get X number of jobs that will be created. And maybe it's a, a, a living wage, minimum wage job, or you'll get X acreage of green space in your neighborhood. But what's actually What's also happening there, in addition to the social benefits that the community is told to look at in your right hand over here, is that in your left hand over here, mm-hmm. the investors, the developers are financially profiting. That's right. And they don't live in that community. And so the call for collective ownership requires us to be very intentional about who is owning this asset. Therefore, who mm-hmm. is generating, how is the how are the financial returns being generated and mm-hmm. who is amassing that wealth and how is that wealth being um, circulated and held in community collectively together. And the governance piece is also important to the work because we're, we continue to be in a practice of deep democracy. You know, I always give credit to the work of Nicole Hannah-Jones from the New York Times 1619 Project, both because it was brilliant um, and she has this one-liner that, um, you know, just sits with me. Black people have been the great perfectors of the American democracy, right? We continue to push this country um, to live into its vision and promise of democracy. And so community-owned and governed projects create kind of a small case study Um, an experiment for us to actually be in that practice of deep democracy, where we have to come together across our multiple owners to understand how will we collectively steward this asset for the benefit, not just of some, but our entire community? How will we navigate conflict in a way that is actually generative and not punitive, particularly as we're trying to reimagine what community looks like without an oppressive state-sanctioned policing Mm -hmm. force. And so these these projects are opportunities for us to be in the active lived experience of building and creating the world that we want to see and be in. The other reason I think this is important for me, I've worked on policy, electoral campaigns, like always trying to figure out like, what are the different ways we create change and, and build power from black and brown communities? And I'm super clear that there is no, there is no white person that could tell me my experience, the experience of my community better than my community could. 
And so while I think it's important to continue to engage um, in democracy and go out and vote every four years in election, I also think that we need to be in a principled practice of what does it take for us to be the ones that are able to govern in the ways that we are demanding our elected officials to, to be the ones that have to wrestle with the hard decisions of of how food is distributed, of how to make sure that we have a public transportation system that's functioning, of how we create a building that is accessible to all people. And so these projects, once again, allow us to test our understanding, our experience, what what is necessary to actually live into this this Mm -hmm. vision for justice and equity. Um, And that while we do that, these projects start to create pillars of shared prosperity where we start to have bright spots, whether it's in Oakland with Restore Oakland, whether it's in New Orleans and in the South with Potluck or Capital Fund, whether it's Boston or Jima, where people can start to see, oh, there's enough of these pillars across the country and around the world where we recognize and see the way to to redefine or recreate that narrative of economy. Um, And so... That that is that is my work. I think that the the economic strategy that we were that we are in, with um, our work with the Restorative Economies Fund at the Katali Foundation is not just economic, but it is political and it is yeah. cultural, as you lifted yeah. up in your introduction, because that economic the economic um, power and the assets then create the platform for us to assert and contest for political power and reinforce the values and the culture that we want to see and live into. Um, I think I just talked for like 30 minutes. So I I, thank you. You know, (laughs) well, Amaka, you, you just kind of weaved in the entire ecosystem of, of, of what it is to be human, what it is to be human on this planet, what is it that, um, that how do we create what we know inside ourselves is just? You know, you started out, what I love, you started out by saying that basically that all these structures, that the economy, it looked like it was this solid rock, this thing that was unapproachable. And you realize that it was made up. It was made up. Therefore, it can be unmade up, right? It can always, and what you are doing and all the work that you're pointing to and everything that you said is like, it's taking that mentality, a new worldview, getting out of what we've been told is fact, realizing it is in fact fiction, and but with real consequences, real impact and real consequences, right? Those are, that's real. And empowering, having the power and the vision to just know that this can be done differently, that we can create the world in a full 360 degrees. You have talked about every sector, just about, you know, um, how it's all linked. You've connected all the dots and how underneath it is this financial system that is this racial capitalism that is based on complete extraction the mythology of, 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 um, meritocracy, right? The mythology that I deserve this because I have all this wealth and I have all these resources because I work so hard for it, you know, and, and, and it's through merit and those who don't have it, it's because they just haven't worked that hard enough. Mm 
They haven't, they don't have what I have. And we know that that's not true. We know that that is not true. And it's built upon lies. It's built upon lies. And what I hear and see you doing, which you have done since the day I met you, is to confront the lies and to not only do that, not only just look at what's not happening, but turn over here and say, this is what we're building. And to go about the business of building it, go about the business of bringing the resources, bringing a new worldview and spreading it with restorative economics, with just transition, with um, with um, um, solidarity, philanthropy and economy. All of that is saying there is another way to do this. We have the power to do it. We have the creativity to do it. And it goes, again, it boils down to culture. You know, it boils down to culture. And so I'm loving um, this, how you have just stitched it all together in such a beautiful way. And the work that you are doing is just phenomenal, just phenomenal. I would love for you to talk about philanthropy. And I think that people think that philanthropy is like, you know, this wonderful, you know, people are are doing this incredible gift to those who have not and the impacted communities. And and that um, it's just really uh, we should be grateful and that it is um, something that comes from the heart. And I would like for you to just break down maybe a little bit about the history of philanthropy and what it is done and how it has continued to perpetuate the harm, if you don't mind. <laughs> I don't, I don't mind. And, um, you know, my disclaimer, you know, surprise note to the folks um, is that I am in philanthropy. So I offer right. all of these critiques and reflections as my own way of holding myself, my feet to the fire and my own level of accountability in my role with the with Katali. Um, and so, you know, I would start off by saying being in a philanthropic role was never a part of my vision board, my 10 year plan. Um, but here I am. And so I sit in this role with the, with the awareness of philanthropy has been an industry that was created for the private preservation of, of wealth. Um, so the Carnegie family was behind some of the initial legislation, um, to create philanthropy and the rationale being that we as wealthy individuals, like you said, the, the, the myth of the meritocracy, we as wealthy individuals have amassed all of this wealth because we work harder and we are smarter than everybody else. Therefore, rather than paying our fair share in taxes, that provide a strong social safety net for all people, mm-hmm. we are want to create legislation that allows us to instead take a portion of our wealth, our earnings, and create philanthropic institutions that where we then continue to retain the authority and the right to make decisions off of how these philanthropic dollars are then given back to the community in a charitable way. And oftentimes, you know, these there are ways in which people uh, with wealth will use their philanthropic institutions um, to continue to protect their own political interests and then end up shift, shaping so many of our institutions. So when we see philanthropies that are advocating for the creation of charter schools and undermining the public school system, right? right? When we see um, people that are um, advocating for... Um, uh, private health insurance, ra- when, when, 
when we understand that social movements are actually calling for um, universal health care. And so this is the way that philanthropy continues to retain not just the wealth, but ultimately the political power. And the other piece that we know is that philanthropies are only required by law to give 5% of their earnings on an annual basis. I don't know that people know that. Can you, oh. can you just explain that a little bit? Yes. So any philanthropic institution from year to year is only requ- is required to give up to 5%. They can choose to give more but most just do the minimum. And so what that means is that that 95% may continue to sit in endowments, may be invested in um, in other ways, right? You know, recently when I was working at the Ella Baker Center um, and we were working to um, end mass incarceration as the mission of the organization, come to find out some of our philanthropic institutions didn't realize they were invested in and profiting off of private prisons because of the ways that blended portfolios are set up and decide and designed to obscure the truth around what you're invested in. So you can have a philanthropic institution that on one hand could give a grant to support young people and turning out to the streets to close down the California youth prison system. And on the same hand, is the same institution that's benefiting off of the incarceration exploitation of people. So these are the ways that philanthropy continues to, unfortunately, undermine that political project of creating a more perfect democracy. Um, These resources could and should um, be in um, the public sector to provide Um, access to good quality food, to provide access to good public transportation, all the things that we know are essential um, to a good quality of life. Um, And so those are the the challenges with philanthropy as an institution. Um, Do you advocate for no philanthropy? Do you think that can it be shifted to in a different way, just like we're reimagining everything else that you spoke about? That's a good question. I don't want to say no, that it couldn't shift. It's just not clear to me who stands to benefit and who would be harmed if it were to shift um, and continue on as, as private wealth institutions. I, I do think we have heard from, I've heard from some community organizers that don't necessarily want foundations to be on a spend out track like the Katali Foundation is. We, we um, our amazing um, donors um, decided, um, set the, the vision for this to be a spend out foundation where we were going to redistribute, regenerate um, capital and wealth back out into communities rather than um, having the foundation exist in perpetuity. Um, and so there are some organizers who would say, we actually want you to be around so you continue to resource our work. Um, so I think it's a it's a good debate um, mm-hmm. for for social movements to have and to interrogate the reliance on philanthropy as a sector. That being said, I do think that there are benefit there are ways that philanthropies can, um, really help to address a lot of the hurt and harms that have happened to these same communities. I think a recent example um, that um, I was moved to learn about um, is the work of Stacey Abrams and organizations like the New Georgia Project and Ense yeah. um, Ufo in Georgia and the ways that they had a vision around what it would look like to, once again, 
create a more perfect democracy in Georgia that is more mm -hmm. inclusive, a Black-led multiracial alliance. Mm -hmm. um, and their work started over a decade ago. So while we just saw the wins um, this past election cycle um, with the Georgia state seats, Senate seats and um, turning the state blue, what we know is that this is a vision um, that Stacey had over 10 years ago and philanthropy came in and resourced that vision from the beginning and invested in that vision and helped to build out the electoral infrastructure that then made it possible mm -hmm. for not only the shift in Georgia to happen, but then the outcomes of and now having a democratic majority in the state Senate. Yeah. So philanthropy made that possible, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And um, so that's one of many examples of the ways that I think philanthropy can be engaged and leveraged to create systemic shifts, to build power for black and brown communities, whether it's resourcing um, uh, networks like the Movement for Black Lives, um, institutions, organizations like the NDN Collective. Um, there is, There are ways and opportunities for philanthropy to show up and rise to the occasion. The question is, will philanthropy do that? Will philanthropy fundamentally resource organized efforts that would undermine their own existence? Right. That is, that's the right. crux of it. And we right. hope that you know these philanthropists that mean well would do that. But what we have seen so far is that the wealth divide has only continued to grow. Yeah. And we see that people continue, philanthropies continue to question the knowledge, the expertise, the experience of black and brown communities, even when they say, this is my experience yeah. and this is what I need to resource. So, so yeah, I would say, all that to say why I am excited to be in in this work um, with the Katali Foundation, with our amazing team. Um, there's a couple of reasons. One, we, we have donors that have done a lot of their, so this is interesting. I, my, as a, as a social justice organizer, always look at the systems change, the practices and the policies, right? And I also understand that there's a role for individual transformation. Mm -hmm. And so the donors um, that seeded the capital for Katali Foundation, um, Regan Pritzker and Chris Olin had done a lot of personal work mm -hmm. where they as white wealthy individuals were able to make a commitment to redistributing a portion of their wealth through the Katali Foundation. And so they um, created and capitalized the foundation with a commitment to have a foundation focused on supporting black and indigenous and community of color led and organized projects um, in the areas of restorative economics, which we can unpack further if helpful. We have an environmental justice resourcing collective and we have a mindfulness and healing justice um, program area. And so all of those resources will go into prioritizing black and brown and indigenous communities that um, span across those three program areas. Um, and so for me, the ability to not only work with those individuals who were able to continue to organize other wealthy donors and other trustees of other board um, organizations is that I myself, as a youngish looking black woman, mm -hmm. um, 
have been entrusted as the leadership of this foundation. And so I get to show up in my fullness and my blackness of it all in terms of how I then support our team. So I get to come to this work as a practitioner funder, as someone who's worked on policy and done direct actions and worked on electoral campaigns and helped projects go from vision to design to implementation and can bring all of that to then inform our understanding of how do we then move resources in these to these projects in a way that we're not just moving the grant dollars and mm-hmm. the non-extractive investment capital, but we're also sharing our skills and our expertise, mm-hmm. right, with these projects so that um, they are able to kind of go into these projects with a full understanding of, of what it takes. Um, and so to have, to be in a leadership position with the foundation where we get to redistribute resources. We get to support projects where we are lifting up the leadership and the brilliance of Black and Indigenous communities of color. Um, And we're starting to model for philanthropy. What does it look like to truly support practitioners on the ground and making the full decisions of where those resources should go and how they should flow? Um, Then allows me to go back and talk to my other peers and colleagues in philanthropy about there is a different way to go about this. Um, And let's Mm -hmm. actually wrestle with that. So um, the last thing I'll say on this point is, you know, it's interesting. um, You know, there's some, you had shared some of the philanthropies I had consulted with when I was, you know, um, a consultant. And so it's interesting to have, to have engaged some of these philanthropies as a consultant Mm -hmm. and now them inviting me to engage as a CEO of another foundation. Mm -hmm. And while it's still the same Amaka on either side, the ways that they engage me and the power of my position means that Mm -hmm. I not only have the privilege, but the responsibility Mm -hmm. to leverage my role Mm-hmm. Um, to to speak truth to power, um, to continue to say the things that I said to them as a consultant, but now get to say to them as a colleague and a peer in the field. And I get to invite them to accompany us on a yeah. journey yeah. where we're not professing to have it all figured out, but we are willing to support people that want to learn and be in the praxis of the work um, and take some experiments and innovate and figure out how do we yeah. get to a closer truth of what justice and liberation looks like. Uh, you know, I never thought about that, how um, those same people now you come back as a peer that is actually leading the field. You're leading the field. Katali is without a doubt leading the field. And what that, how the that dynamic must be in your life now. Um, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, and I'm sure it must uh, show up all the time. You know what I'm interested in, Amaka? How do you resource yourself? What what is what what your internal resource? How do you resource yourself? Oh, I wasn't ready for this. Me personally. You personally, Amaka Agbo. How do you resource yourself? Yeah, I will say that this is. I recognize that this is a moment where I need to deepen my practices. Um, I need to get, um, I need to continue to come back to center. Um, I need to continue to surround myself by those people that will give me all the truth telling while holding me in love. Um, I would say that um, 
on the surface level, um, exercise is really important to me, not just for the, the physical stamina, but more for the mental stamina. Um, I, I have a, a, a ritual. It's not even just an exercise practice. It's a ritual of exercising in the morning um, that allows me to go through a set of affirmations and the, the physical push, mm-hmm. um, the ways that I have to affirm myself that I can handle and, um, and reach new heights in my exercise is what I know I need to be able to do in my work. And so that kind of helps to prepare me for the day. Um, and, um, I'm also committed to, um, sleep. I've, I've been searching for like all the best tools for good quality sleep, whether it's the earbuds, the sleep mask, the, Mm -hmm. the stress fee, stress fee free, um, gummies. Um, but really recognizing that sleep and sweat are the things that have been able that have helped me to start and close my day. So just on a day-to-day basis, that is how I resource myself. Um, and one of the things that um, I'm observing about this role um, is that it also forces me to get really clear about who my people are. Like my people is a lot of people, yeah. but the people that both hold mm-hmm. me accountable, but hold me in community. Um, it starts to get smaller and smaller because you start to just get clear about who is there to see you succeed, knowing that your success means shifts for the communities that we are advocating for. Mm-hmm. And so um, continue to deepen relationship um, with the with a number of people that um, I know want me to be my best and highest self. Um, So those, you know, when I have a, I've grappled with having a strong meditation practice, um, but I would say in this moment, um, I'm struggling to resource myself a little bit more. I'm recognizing um, the, The isolation of the position, I guess I would say, mm, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and which just comes with mm-hmm. the privilege of the role as well. It's mm-hmm. just, you don't get to both lead a multi-million foundation, million dollar foundation, um, and then just be like, well, I'm just going to, hang with everybody it's like no you have a responsibility for how you show up in certain spaces and you have to take that really seriously yeah so I probably said too much for a podcast but um Mm. I think if I could offer the other piece that I'm struggling with or I'm observing Conda is um because I come from a value of of the collective it is interesting to also recognize the importance of my my role so I'm always toggling back and forth with how much is it important for me to assert myself as the black female leadership um in this work um it's not in my nature but I know it's important and so I'm there's also just some personal development pieces that I'm moving through um in this role um even though I'm not the person with wealth um you know, I sign on the dotted line for a lot of things. And so um, what does it mean to both make sure, visibilize, what does it mean to ensure that I am not invisibilized in my role and my position? How do I do that with a level of humility and humbleness? Um, 
is is something that I'm leaning into and learning about. Yeah, it's interesting because it's um, I mean, I think about you in this position, and I know that in this world, money is power, and um, even though it really isn't. You know, the truth is that it isn't. It's just an agreement that we all make. We make an agreement that is power. Um, and But that agreement is is pretty agreed upon. And where you sit now is um, you have the position of power. And I couldn't ask for a better person to have the kind of power that you, and, and I'm just going to be, you know, straight up, the kind of power that you have right now because of how you are directing everything that you said this this evening on this podcast and everything that you do when you go to bed tonight, when you wake up tomorrow and what you're going to do tomorrow and what you did today and what you did yesterday, you are actually living the lived experience. This is not theory. It started that way, I'm sure, you know, like grappling with how is this working? How does this work? And then, and to be able to operationalize it, like for real, for real, in communities and make impact the way you do and have your peers looking and you're being able to lead. It's, um, I got to say, it feels to me something is shifting. Something is really shifting for this opening because I'm, you're, there's other people that I see the field. I would love to just ask my last question, honestly, is about the field. What are you seeing in the field right now? I mean, we talk about philanthropy. We talked about, you know, some of the, the, the drawbacks and the wealth accumulation that it does and the kind of harm. And in addition to that, something is shifting. I see an opening. I see people who are understanding everything that you're saying. I think about the runway project. I think about Buen Vivir. I think about, I think about there's so many people in the field right now. What are you seeing um, from your vantage point? Yeah, when it comes to the field on the ground, the people that are doing the work, um, I see our communities continuing to be resilient and innovative out of necessity. Yeah. Right? So when you talk about Jessica's work with Runway, I mean, Homegirl been, been seeing it and knowing it for for long, long before, right? Um, and so what is interesting is that people, um, I believe in the capacity of people um, to develop and innovate and figure out how to survive and sometimes thrive in spite of all the the, mm-hmm. the pressures against them. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of great, exciting work and projects happening out there. And and I think the 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 opportunity for funders is to figure out can we catch up to where the field is at? Right. Can policy catch up to what people are are already creating and innovating? And so that is um if we can start to really lift up and show how, I mean, you probably recall back when we were working on, you were coaching me through Soul of the City, right? That people were like, oh, that's not a real thing. The the solidarity economy won't happen at scale. There's not enough projects. And now, you know, we can talk about from real people's fund to seed commons to all the things there's, you, you know, Paul, you couldn't stop talking about all the projects we see 
mm-hmm. taking place. And so for me, that is really exciting. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and I think we will see more of that continue to happen. The, the other thing I want to lift up about these projects um, is that people are actively building not what's politically feasible, right? Not what can be negotiated or amended away in a piece of legislation, but what they know is fundamentally necessary to thrive and to win. And so when you opened and talking about our ancestors yelling, like these are people that are deeply listening to, don't limit yourself by the smallness of someone's inability to see you free. Mm. Dream yourself into liberation. Mm. And so that's what these projects are really, really lifting up. I think what I'm observing then in the field of philanthropy you know, I'll share a small story. There was this person who had reached out to me a couple of weeks ago or about a month ago. And they're like, I want to interview you for a story on racial justice philanthropy. And I was like, you know what? I can't be bothered. I don't know how many different ways. And I have to tell you folks what it looks like to just invest in, in communities of color. And right. so the person followed up with me again. And, um, and so I opened by asking them, like, how was this study, the support supposed to be different? Tell me, Tell me what people don't get after right. the murder and the the murder of George Floyd and the the uprisings that followed. After we went through it with Trayvon Martin and, and Mike Brown and Sandra Bland, like right. what is philanthropy not understanding of when people say racial justice philanthropy, right? And so, um, yeah, What's all that problem? to say, yes. And what is interesting, this inverse, when when we were talking about the people seeing the stories as fixed structures, Mm. I do think people that have never imagined or can't comprehend a free black and brown people do see these structures, the ways that we do investments, the requirements for market rate, the way we do diligence as fixed. And so I do see philanthropies trying to grapple with, well, how they are the, when they ask, how do we do this differently? It's a legitimate question because their their imagination has been limited by the structures that they yeah. have also bought into. Yeah. Um, so it for me, it while you know sometimes I have to catch my breath, roll my eyes, and be like, <laughs> right. okay, you know, right, suck your teeth. Long as <laughs> but um, but that there are those that are they're wanting to learn. They want to know and. Um, mm-hmm. And what is great, I think about the work of, I always like to, you know, lift up Crystal Haley's project, um, the Democracy Frontlines Fund. Crystal got to a point with her work where the required, oftentimes philanthropy wants to learn first and then do. Um, For the Democracy Frontlines Fund, uh, Crystal required that foundations put up a commitment to resource a slate of um, of Black-led organizations in order to learn. So commit the resources first. <laughs> right. Right. And then right. we can be in a learning process around it. And so I'm trying Fantastic. to really lean into those philanthropies that reach out. They're like, we want to learn what you're doing with Katali. Tell us more about the Restorative Economies Fund. So great. How much do you want to commit to doing this work? Because they're used to engaging me as a consultant that's going to hold their hand. And I was like, no, right. I you you reached out to me on my Katali email address. <laughs> right. So, so I, what I need to know is if you're going to pull me away from supporting right. my team and, and moving mm-hmm. our resources, mm-hmm. are, you re- are you willing to put something on the table for these communities? And that's the shift between 
going from that's a shift from charity to solidarity what we Mm -hmm. are calling for now is fundamentally solidarity Mm -hmm. people that are willing to take risks which i don't actually see as risks i see them as necessary Mm -hmm. investments for Mm -hmm. our collective liberation but Mm -hmm. those that are willing to commit the resources to do the work um towards really redistributing this wealth in a way that people can have more freedom and more justice and so yeah, I think philanthropy would be so lucky um, if it could listen deeply to what's emerging um, on the grounds in mm. communities and resource them. And like Vinny Bansali from Solidaire Network always says, resource us like you want us to win. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Let's resource folks yeah. like we want them to win. So. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't help but just point out too. you know, when I think about you, I think about Crystal Haling and Jessica, I mean, Stacey Abrams, a lot of the people we have not said and called out black women and the role that black women are playing right now and have always have always played. And what the pivotal point is such a it's like this this pivotal moment when the world and America is actually seeing and 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 having to having to not be there's there's no more opportunity not to see anymore the the opportunity not to see is over you know and it's like it's in our face it's in everybody's face and to see that what the role that Black women are playing and leading us out of the madness, leading us into a bright future, leading us into liberation. It's incredible. And I'm so happy to be able to have a front row seat <laughs> watching and being engaging in what my sisters are doing. And I couldn't be more proud I couldn't be more proud. You know, my last, last question is usually the first question that I ask. And we got off to such a start. This is my, this is the first question I always ask. So the name of this podcast is the Brown Rice Hour. And there's a reason for it. I mean, it's a double entendre, you know, because I work in rice, as you, I think you know. Um, as well as brown rice was um, a pivotal point in my life when I changed my diet. You know, I did this macrobiotic thing. This was in the 70s. And it was like, uh, you know, I was not, I was sick most of my life with stomach issues and different issues. And when I went macrobiotic and brown rice is a important part of my healing, it was, right? And so I love brown rice. It's just one of those things. And, uh, and I'm a foodie. I'm a foodie. So one of the things that I usually start this podcast with is asking people, so I'm going to ask you now at the end, what was your comfort food growing up? What was your comfort food and who prepared it? What was it that just, mm. Well, you know, it, it's going to be, it's going to be my mama, um, Sophia Agbo, um, who is an amazing, amazing cook. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, we, we had the pleasure of eating Nigerian food um, in, in our home. Um, what is interesting, there's two foods that come up for me. Um, one is plantains, like Mm. You know, there there are memes around how people around the world eat their plantains. Um, we like our plantains very, very ripe um, and fried. Um, and so plantains was always the first thing I would eat off of my okay. plate. 
Um, <laughs> my mom is um, a fantastic cook, and mm. she used to also make um, this thing called egusi soup, um, and it's um, it's almost like a, a ground pumpkin seed that you make um, a soup out of with uh, palm oil and um, and greens, and um, and then you eat it with fufu, farina, or pounded yam, whatever it may be, mm. and um, just so so delicious. And um, those are the things that I've been missing the most. I haven't seen my mom since May. Um, she only lives a few hours away um, because of COVID. That mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, but that that comfort food of the plantains and the agusi soup and the fufu that just fills your belly. I think those are some of my, I wish when I was younger, I appreciated it more because now as an adult, I try to make it. And it, and never I was going to ask same. you, don't you make it? I Did try. You learn? I do, but it's not the same. It's not know? the same. You haven't just perfected your own version of your mom's. No, she doesn't. No. She puts a little stuff. You know, when you ask your mom, well, tell me, how did you make the thing? And she, mm-hmm. they don't ever want to tell their secrets. There's no recipe. Right. There's right. no measurements. And right. so, you know, right. I'll keep testing it out though. Uh, one day keep one doing day. it you got to keep doing it and I, I would like to be invited over one day because um that sounds really really good to me we can do that we can do that <laughs> I love yeah. it well thank you Maka um, for being here with me thank you for you thank you for you and your mother I want to thank your mother for um you know bringing you into this world because uh, our, our, our 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 mothers our black moms are really you know, they, 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 they hold it down. They have held it down. They have held it down. And I want to thank her and thank you for who you are and what you bring. And, um, I just am thrilled, thrilled, thrilled. When I first moved to Oakland and when I met you, I thought, Ooh, she's a superstar. She is a superstar. Thank you for having me. Thank you for indulging me in my very long and wordy comments. And, um, Mm. And I look forward to working with you and the yeah. work that you're doing and what you're yeah. learning. Yeah. Um, I'm re- I'm really excited um, for the the collective movement of of what our people are up to. So yeah, yeah. Hopefully we'll we'll circle back in a a couple of years to, to do a recap yeah. on where we're at. I love it. All right, my dear. You take good care. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.